Hey guys, thanks for listening again today. I'm super excited to bring on a very impressive guest whose bio will get into a little later, but his name is Lawrence Lessig. Uh, so please continue to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to this podcast so I can continue to bring great guests like Lawrence Lessig on. Uh, we're going to talk about the state of democracy in the United States, which is very scary, uh, always, but especially at the moment, some ways to fix it, and uh, we go into some practical strategies on how to do this. So please enjoy the show, and uh, thank you so much for your support. Hey, Fringe Voices Show listeners. Today, I'm very honored to speak with Lawrence Lessig, and for those that don't know this impressive human Lawrence Lessig is the Royale Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School, prior to which he founded the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School and taught at the University of Chicago. He's also the founder of Equal Citizens and a founding board member of Creative Commons. Lessig serves on the scientific board of AXA Research Fund and has received numerous awards, including a Webby Free Software Foundation's Freedom Award, Scientific American 50, and Fast Case 50 Awards. Not only that, he's been cited by The New Yorker as the most important thinker on intellectual property in the internet era. Lessig's current work addresses institutional corruption, relationships which, while legal, weaken public trust in an institution, especially as that affects democracy. His books include They Don't Represent Us, Fidelity and Constraint, how the Supreme Court has read the American Constitution, America Compromised, Republic Lost, Republic Lost, How many? How Money Corrupts Congress, and A Plan to Stop It, among many others. Lessig holds undergraduate degrees from the University of Pennsylvania, an MA in philosophy from Cambridge University, and a JD from Yale. So after that very impressive uh, introduction, uh, how are you doing, Larry? Uh, I'm, I'm great. A little... Uh... A little bit exhausted by everything that's going on, but I'm happy to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much once again for joining me on the show today. I know we both are dads and we have a lot of busy stuff going on. So thanks so much again for coming on the show. Um, I wanted to just like first start off maybe in a kind of unusual way and just dive in a little bit if you're comfortable with it on like what your personal history is probably like coming from your early childhood. Why not? What made you like? create this value system and and with this impressive educational background, why not just become a corporate lobbyist or something like that? <laughs> um, you know, I guess everything's about your parents and, you know, my, my dad in particular gave me a really strong sense that you needed to work on things that you felt proud of. And um, when I was thinking about, what I could do with the legal education I had, I realized that I didn't have the discipline to work on problems I didn't find interesting. So I felt I was compelled to do something like become an academic where I could choose what I wanted to work on. Mm. Um, but, uh, but after becoming an academic and focusing on questions originally around intellectual property and the internet, but then more generally democracy as a whole, I was driven to take up this challenge of trying to get us a democracy that's actually representative, that's not corrupted by the corrupting influence of money or all the other distortions that are placed in the middle of it. Because if we don't fix that problem, if we don't find a way to address that problem, none of the other things that anybody cares about 
can be solved either. So that that led me into this place, and um, I guess I'm stuck here until we f- we find a way to fix it. Well, I'm happy that you're the person that is the one that's stuck here. I mean, I'm I'm saying that in a positive way because you do have a lot of great ideas, and you know, just like to kind of backtrack you a little bit too. Um, you know, I agree. I think parents are are definitely influence on us, and I think that's what's influenced my value system as well. But the the way that I found you is is actually I'm a, a guy from the Napster days and the free culture movement, and I read your free culture book. Um, so I've kind of started at that and and watched you progress into the as you elaborated on into this uh, you know trying to get money out of politics. Um, and you have many movements to reform our democracy. Which one do you feel is the most crucial right now? There's so many crazy things going on right now. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, I first became active in public issues around the issues of what we called free culture. And then about a dozen years ago, um, another free culture activist, Aaron Swartz, came to me and said, you know, why do you think you're ever going to make any progress on those issues so long as we have this deeply corrupted political system? Mm-hmm. And and recognizing that led me into this more fundamental work about democracy. And so, you know, I, I've, I've, I feel like I've evolved in my thinking about how to address this problem over the last 12 years. But I think the most important headline is to recognize that we are actually very close to having a government that's at least committed to adopting fundamental reforms that could address this problem sensibly. So, um, you know, the Democrats in uh, 2019 uh, passed uh, HR1. HR1 is the most comprehensive reform package for democratic reform that we've seen passed by the House of Representatives since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It included public funding for congressional elections, an end to gerrymandering, restoration of the Voting Rights Act, a commitment to um, strengthened ethics uh, reform for Congress people. And HR1. Uh, was important not only because of the substance, but also because it had announced the importance of its own priority. It said HR1, which means you got to solve this before you can solve anything else. And I think that the, the uh, recognition of that manifested by the House of Representatives, um, and now Chuck Schumer says that if the Senate were to become controlled by Democrats, they would also pass HR1 or uh, Senate 1. Um, and a potential president who's committed to the idea of um, uh, exactly the same kind of reform means that we're at a moment where if we could just get beyond the catastrophe that stands before us, this pandemic, this depression, this election, and think you know, into the spring, there's a real chance that we could have a Congress that could actually adopt this type of reform and make make this real. Um, and so I think that the real focus right now has got to be to elect people who will make who've made that commitment and will make that possible. Um, and to see whether, you know, the Democrats have promised to deliver, whether in fact they will deliver. And if they do, you know, we can go on to other problems. <laughs> but if they don't, um, then I think it's revolution. Other people have been trying forever to 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 bring it bring it home, to make it so people, 
can see and understand exactly why this has to happen uh, before anything else that they care about can happen. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, so I think the most important thing is to get people to recognize why reform has to be the first thing that happens. And by people, I mean everybody, um, uh, uh, both you know, politicians and ordinary people. Because if we don't make this common knowledge, like, like the first thing people say, um, it won't happen. If we allow the politicians to talk about all the great ideas they have as if those ideas are possible, um, then it won't happen. So I think the most important thing is just to make it common wisdom, like just the most obvious point, that when somebody says, here's what I want the government to do, you say in response, okay, yeah, but before the government can do that, it must address this fundamental corruption first. And so that means electing people who say that, that means raising that question every time you're talking to a political person. That means every time you talk about politics, you sort of add this as the bumper, both before and after um, what you're saying, to make it so that we all recognize this is the essential thing that has to happen um, if we're ever going to make anything else possible. And you've, you've elaborated on in the past about public campaign financing, uh, but I just wanted to, you know, because I, you know, I am coming from the Bronx and there are a lot of people that may not be educated on this. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, it just is a very real possibility. But what is your uh, idea for public uh, campaign financing? Right. Well, the important thing is to think about why money is a problem. Um, and, you know, many people talk about money as a problem because they are worried about, you know, campaign spending. They think that too much is being spent, too much money is focused on ads. All of that it does, isn't what bothers me. What bothers me is not the spending, it's the fundraising. Right. So when you imagine a member of Congress spending 30 to 70 percent of their time sitting in a call center, dialing for dollars, calling a tiny, tiny fraction of the 1%. That is the problem. Because as they do that, they become so attuned, so sensitive to exactly what those donors want, and they bend their priorities to serve what their donors want. Now, most of the time, they're smart enough not to acknowledge this, but there was an extraordinary moment on the floor of the House when Congress was passing the $1.6 trillion tax cut that benefited primarily large corporations and rich Americans, one Republican member from the from New York stood up on the floor of uh, the House and said that his contributors had told him that if he didn't pass this bill, he should never call them again. So there he was saying out loud, but you know, you're not supposed to say out loud, that there right. he was making a decision about whether to support a bill or not based on what his funders want. Now, the problem here is not that there are funders to campaigns. Campaigns cost money. They have to be paid for. The problem is that the funders represent a tiny, tiny fraction of the 1%. And if that's the problem, the solution is to make it so they don't represent the tiny fraction of the 1%. They represent all of us. And the simplest way to do that is an idea which actually Kirsten Gillibrand from New York has pressed and Andrew Yang pressed in the last uh, Democratic primary, and, and um, Bernie Sanders also 
came around to endorsing it quite strongly. This is the idea of something called democracy vouchers. So what democracy vouchers would do is that basically as a voter, you would receive a booklet of coupons. Um, you know, they're basically worth Kirsten Gillibrand, it would be $200 per federal election. So if you're in a cycle where you're electing a representative, a senator, and a president, that means $600 worth of coupons would come to you. Wow. But those coupons could only be used to donate to a political campaign. So, you know, basically your representative would come to you and say, look, I need your support. Give me, you know, $100 of your coupons. Um, and these vouchers or coupons then would become the way people raised the money that they need to run for Congress. Now, the point is that they would be raising money from all of us, not from the tiny fraction of the 1% of us. And they would become sensitive to what all of us want, not the tiny fraction of the 1%. And that's exactly what a democracy is supposed to do. It's supposed to build a public that is deeply committed to um, uh, uh, making the representatives represent them and the representatives need to be focused on representing all of the public, not just the tiny part that happens to fund their campaigns. That change could happen tomorrow. If, if that change happens, and it could happen, it's a perfectly constitutional. The Supreme Court has affirmed this type of reform. We've seen it happen in places like Seattle. Um, then it would radically change how Congress people think about their job. They would not be thinking all the time, first, how's this going to affect my fundraising? They'd be thinking all the time, first, how does this affect the support I have by the people who are supposed to be uh, supporting me to elect me? And that that's the objective of what a democracy should be striving for. And I agree. I definitely agree that that's what our representatives should be doing. But <clears throat> I guess at the same time, just like on the the devil's advocate, what, why would someone from the like, let's say, just in general, the Republican side, want to do something like this when they can already do this fundraising for their campaign and 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 just go along with what said that's coming with that money? You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I, the reality is that if you talk to, or, to ordinary Republicans, like real Republican voters, the vast majority of them, like the vast majority of Democrats, believe the system is corrupted. Members of Congress are bending over backwards to help their funders, not their voters, and that special interests have too much power inside of our system. Right. If you go to Congress and you talk to ordinary Congress people, uh, there was a documentary that was screened last night. Um, uh, on HBO called The Swamp, which is interestingly focused on right-wing Congress people, including the vilified and maybe properly vilified uh, Matt Gaetz, um, uh, who's a big supporter of Donald Trump. But these right-wing Republican Congress people are also deeply frustrated by the corrupting influence of money inside of the political process. And so the the documentary is all about them struggling to avoid or eliminate or minimize this corruption or find ways to address this corruption because they too think it's absurd, as Matt Getz says at one place, to have to whore yourself out to these contributors, to these lobbyists, to these people who are trying to bend you 
uh, bend you as a congressperson to the interest of their clients. Um, so I think that ordinary people and ordinary Congress people get this. The problem in Congress is the leadership in Congress. And in particular, it is Mitch McConnell, who is the dark lord of Washington, D.C. Mitch McConnell is the most important and destructive force um, for democratic reform in Washington right now. He has made it his cause to eliminate all efforts at regulating campaign um, uh, spending or, um, or trying to assure uh, a more vibrant or representative democratic system. He, when H.R. 1 passed the House of Representatives, he immediately said it would never be even taken up in the uh, Senate because it was um, it was a democratic uh, um, power grab, and by that he meant capital D democratic power grab. Mm. Uh, you know, but it but he was right about it being a small D democratic power grab because the whole objective of the bill was to make it so our political system was more democratically responsive, and. Right. Um, and yet this is something he does not want because his whole model of how democracy is supposed to function is that government bends over backwards to benefit the wealthiest um, or the most powerful corporations. And indeed, when you see this whole struggle going on in Washington right now about whether there's going to be a second coronavirus um, stimulus or relief package, um, you know, Mitch McConnell has said there's not going to be anything passing the Senate unless it includes a provision that grants immunity to corporations if corporations negligently injure their employees uh, because of their response to coronavirus. And you're like, how could this be the most important thing? You've got people who are literally right. running out of money. They don't have money for rent or for food or for anything because of this catastrophically botched response the United States has had to this virus. And, and yet this is the thing the Dark Lord thinks we have to address before anything else gets to be addressed. So, so I, I think the Republican Party has a problem, and, it's, and the problem is a man named Mitch McConnell. And if Mitch McConnell were gone and Republicans could begin to think openly again about how do you actually get a democracy that makes sense democratically, I think there's a chance, not that you'd get a majority of them to support reform, but you'd get enough of them to support reform at a level that would make it so that we could say that this is actually reform supported in a cross-partisan way as opposed to reform focused exclusively um, uh, to Democrats. Right. And yeah, you bring up a great point. I mean, the so-called dark Lord is, is really waving a big influence over this process. And I guess a follow-up question to that would be, and it, it seems kind of apropos, is like, if every American had one hour of time and $25 a week to dedicate to, uh, let's say, electoral reform or these anti-corruption goals, and assuming that this could help overthrow uh, the Dark Lord, what are the three most important things we could allocate that time and money to to help your work and these uh, anti-corruption goals? I think the most important thing right now is to assure that we have a Congress that will pass fundamental reform. So that means targeting representatives um, who are on the fence um, or who are opposed to reform 
and and pressing them to embrace the idea of reform. So does your congressperson support HR1 and do they commit to uh, endorsing HR1 on day one? You know, that's the promise. I promise on day one, the first thing I do as a member of Congress is to co-sponsor this fundamental reform. And if we can get a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate who have done that, then there's a shot. I mean, you know, big money is not going to roll over. Uh, right. And it's not like, you know, merely having the votes in Congress is enough to make sure that it happens. So merely having the votes will just set up a fight. That's a fight that's going to take a lot of energy and a lot of uh, rallying of people around the country when we have it. But we need to be able to realistically have that fight. And that happens by electing a Congress that is committed to reform. Um, and so, you know, many people in Democratic districts, every single Democrats, you know, supported H.R. 1. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a district where you've got a new Democrat coming in or it's an open primary, um, then that's the question for that Democrat. But um, I think the more important question right now is how do you begin to get Republicans to talk about reform in this um, in this in this way too, and so I you know I think working with groups like Take Back Our Republic if you're a Republican, which is a Republican organization trying to push reform among Republicans, um, or End Citizens United, um, which is an organization that's trying to elect representatives who are committed to to reform. I think those are organizations that you know could help advance the ball on this you know really important. Um, uh, objective of getting a Congress. That's number one. Number two, we, you know, my organization, uh, uh, you know, the latest organization I've started, I'm, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur and I start these nonprofits and hand them off. If they were for profit, I'd be wealthy now, but, uh, you know, nonprofits, you don't, you don't make anything from them. But the one I'm started now is called Equal Citizens. And we've been doing a lot of strategic litigation um, to try to tee up, uh, the opportunity to make fundamental reform uh, over democratic issues. But we've done a lot of work around the Electoral College. And we've launched a project called Fix the College, which is um, which is going to uh, start by crowdsourcing uh, the changes that uh, people, you know, that people actually believe should be made to the Electoral College. Like this is typically framed in a very simplistic way. This People who say we should just abolish it and people say we should just keep it. And if we recognize that neither of those positions or the abolishing position is not yet at a place where it's going to have enough to amend the Constitution, um, then we might ask another question, which is, well, if we weren't talking about directly abolishing it, what changes could we make to it that would solve most of the problems it creates? And what we found is that um, there's actually some pretty... Uh, straightforward changes that would get us 99% of what abolishing it would get us. Like it would get us a representative president, a president who cares about all of America, not just a swing state America. And so the Electoral College is interesting because we actually think that this issue can be teed up in a way that's genuinely cross-partisan, where people on both sides can realize why fixing the system or fixing the college would benefit them. Um, even though right now it's framed in a very partisan way. And so um, so if you know that's a issue, you can go to fixthecollege.us and and sign up to to help on that project because we expect in a in you know six weeks uh, to two months to begin the project of this crowdsourcing deliberation online, obviously in the COVID era, um, to build um, 
you know, a very strong recognition of the support for fundamental reform here too. Um, so those are just two, you know, steps that I think could be really helpful in the immediate term. Yeah, and I'm really intrigued by your recent work. I know I I I think I remember back in the day you had something called root strikers too, along the lines of uh, you know starting up these nonprofits. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I I'm I mean myself, I'm definitely on board with this. I know my district is represented by AOC, so we have no question there on that. Yeah. Um, but you know another you have these these really great reforms and i and i'm really hoping that you know everyday people do become educated about them so that we can uh put the pressure on and elect responsible uh politicians and one thing that i was also intrigued by is in your most recent book they don't represent us uh the idea of civic juries um and this is kind of switching gears a little bit but could you elaborate on what these are and how they would work? Yeah, so the idea um, of, of civil or civic juries is to build on, um, you know, a very American tradition, uh, which is the jury, uh, which, you know, if you step back and think about it, is really an astonishing institution. You know, if we hand over to 12 citizens, the ability to make life and death decisions in criminal contexts, or, you know, a decision to tax Exxon with a $50 billion penalty for, you know, spilling oil in, in the Gulf. Um, you know, those are decisions which they have, or they've been given the power to um, um, have, because we have some confidence in the process that leads them to that decision. And that process is inside of a court and judges make sure they consider the information in the right way and so forth. So the idea of a civic jury is um, to take, a, take an issue which is important to public policy that we know the politicians are not able to solve. So, you know, money in politics might be an example, um, or you could say, um, uh, gun safety could be an example. I mean, issues that we know are stuck inside of our system. Right. And let's take a random selection representative of the public. Um, you know, let's say ideally something like 500 people and give them a chance to be exposed to information on both sides of the issue. Um, you know, and that information is developed by people who care about each side of the issue. So you've got process to make sure it's a fair and balanced presentation of the issue. And then you present it to these individuals um, uh, in a way that uh, gives them a chance to deliberate in small groups and in large uh, contexts about the merits of the question. And at the end of that deliberation, they give their view. Now, they've given their view before they start, and then they compare their view after they've deliberated, and you see the direction that they've moved. And um, and you see whether they've moved. Um, and if they have moved in a significant way, that begins to signal to you that there's, um, uh, you know, real opportunity for progress on this issue. That's that's kind of hidden by the the current framework um, as you know it's presented. There's a really great example um, um, of this that was that was conducted in 2019, called the America in One Room Project, um, where they did exactly that. They got 500 Americans, they brought them together into um, into a single uh, context in Texas, and um, 
And what they did was take, you know, a, a range of issues that were the standard issues that everybody thinks about from immigration to economic policy and so forth. And they gave them a chance to deliberate um, after being presented with um, the information. Um, and then they uh, polled them about their views after their deliberation. And what they would find was the, the views would shift dramatically um, over issues that they had deliberated about. Um, so, you know, you would see 30 point shifts, um, wow. you know, uh, from Democrats and Republicans um, on the issue going, you know, starting and, and then moving in a direction that, um, you know, would surprise you. And it's not just shifts to the left, it's also shifts to the right. So, you know, you take an issue like $15 minimum wage, you start, you know, the, um, uh, they started uh, that deliberation um, and, you know, Democrats were very strong um, uh, um, in favor of it. Overall support for that um, was 54% and then it shifted down to 39%. But 23% of, 23 points of Democrats had moved um, um, uh, after that deliberation. Um, and this was, Evidencing, you know, the fact that as people thought about this more, they had a they had a more informed or different view. The same thing happened on the right. For example, they had questions about immigration, um, and so uh, you know they had a question of reducing the number of refugees allowed to resettle in the United States, and um, uh, uh, and that support for that dropped dramatically uh, among Republicans. It dropped 31 points among Republicans. 66% had supported it originally, and after the deliberation, 34% supported it. So, so the point is that this process gives people a chance to understand the issues and then um, give their views about them in an informed way. And that process, um, I think, could begin to be, be the basis of a different way that we contribute to the democratic deliberations of our government. I, I mean, I personally would be happy to make these juries, uh, you know, uh, be able to act with real power, but that's not what I'm proposing. I'm proposing in the initial step to just give them an opportunity to deliberate and then make recommendations which our government must consider. In other places around the world, like Belgium and in France, they're creating these citizen juries or citizen, um, uh, in France is talking about a citizen Senate, which are almost like permanent bodies of randomly selected people who have the capacity to make a judgment that then the government must uh, consider or must follow. So that, that might be in our future, but I think the first step is doing it in a way that at least gives us a chance to deliberate about it um, uh, and uh, give informed uh, ideas that, um, that uh, you know would be different from what our politicians would be doing. Yeah, I was really intrigued by this too, especially in this current era of like polarization and tribalism and all of that. And it's very interesting to hear you talk about how the views shifted significantly with uh, discourse amongst uh, you know different viewpoints. So I think that is like something that I'm very uh, intrigued by and, and want to pursue more myself. Um, Switching gears a little bit again, um, because I know we're we're both like busy people. We we want to you know get close on our time. Who are some of your influences, and and just what motivates you to do your work every day? I mean, this is not easy work that you're pursuing. It can be challenging at times. I'm sure there's ups and downs, and more downs than ups. 
So what motivates you and, and who are or what are some of your influences? Well, I, you know, that question always um, triggers me because one part of me thinks, well, why would you not work on, why, why else would you work on anything else? You know, because if you come to the view that I have, and it's not, I think, a crazy view that our government is basically broken, it right. can't function, it can't, it can't resolve any issue sensibly. Um, you know, I think last year people would have said that's true for most issues, but you know, if we got into a real crisis, then then our government could step up. But look, <laughs> you know, we're in the yeah. worst pandemic in a hundred years, and and still our government has no capacity to, exactly. to do the most basic things that need to be done. And and so you know, you look at our government and its total failure to address this in any sensible way, and you compare it to governments. You know, the president brags that we're better than Brazil. I mean. That's ridiculous. The question isn't Brazil. The question is, how do we stand next to Germany or France or even Italy, right? And, right. and the point is, they have a functioning government that's able to address problems in a way that helps their people. We don't. And so if we don't get that, then, then it's not just pandemics. It's every single important issue out there. We're not going to have the capacity to address. And so I think... You know, the, the the question for me is like, if you care about this country, if you care about your kids, then what else would you be working on? Right. Uh, because this is what has to be fixed if we're ever going to have a chance to, 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 to deal with these other issues too. So, so that's what motivates me. You know, I made a promise to my friend Aaron Swartz that I would take this issue up. I kind of thought it wouldn't take quite as long as it has. Um, I figure I've got a good 10 more years in this before um, nature has its way and I just have to move on um, to retirement, basically. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm committed and in it as long as I, I need, uh, I can uh, be in it to make sure that it happens um, because I just think it's got to happen. There's, there's no option here. It's, it's what must occur if we're to have any chance to address problems sensibly. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes total sense, and I can understand why it would trigger you too, because it is it it just makes sense. It's the only way uh, to to reform this democracy, and uh, like you said, I think it's just going to require, especially like in areas like uh, you know the Bronx or other areas, just education and uh, you know supposedly Trump is draining the swamp and educating people about that. Um, uh, you know, so. Um, yeah, I think you're right. You're you're definitely, uh, you know. So, uh, just kind of piggybacking on that too. I know, I know this is kind of a generic question, but uh, I do want to put some of the the things that you talked about in the show notes. And one thing that people always seemed intrigued by is like, do you have any book or other media recommendations? Well, you know, easy. Uh, watch the movie The Swamp. Um, which HBO just opened last night, and obviously it's available on HBO on demand if you've got access to HBO. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of great writing out there right now, um, uh, and uh, and there's ways to get connected to these campaigns. So I would, you know, I think the film is great. I, you know, I would, 
have to plug my own book, which I think um, you know represents a decade's worth of thinking about this. Uh, they don't represent us. And um, and I would you know sign up to groups like uh, EqualCitizens.us and Represent.us um, uh, as institutions that or organizations that will bring you into the fight and to, and to build the army. We're going to need to make sure that if in fact we succeed in sending the Dark Lord home and electing a different president, that we um, will have achieved uh, we'll have the opportunity to achieve the reform next year. That I think is certainly possible. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly possible for the first time in 50 years. Wow. That's saying a lot too. I mean, that's, uh, and I think, you know, everybody, uh, you know, do check out the, I haven't checked it out myself, the swamp, but I, I do want to check it out and, uh, you know, please check out Lawrence's, uh, work. I am going to link to it in the show notes. Um, I, I think we've had a great discussion on, uh, you know, what, most people know, but just for those people that don't about public campaign financing, I'm intrigued by the civic juries. Um, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners today that you want to elaborate on? Yeah, I think the emphasis has got to be to think beyond this crisis. You know, it's so hard to be optimistic right now because there's so much that seems impossible. And especially for people who don't live in a privileged context like, you know, I mean, I'm an academic and it's, I can teach from home, not as well as I think I can teach in person, but, you know, I continue to have my job and I continue to be able to afford to live and support my family. But there are many people who don't have that opportunity, whose job has disappeared, unemployment has ended, um, uh, can't afford their rent. I mean, you know, so I understand how bleak and hopeless this is as a moment in our history. And, um, you know, when you confront the fact that people are still wondering whether this president will be elected or not. It's it's enough to drive you nuts. Like, how could that be a question? I mean, how could this really be a question? But it is. But the point is, if you can just get beyond November, if you just get beyond the imagined crisis that we're all, you know, terrified about it and imagine or just, you know, think, what will the world look like if we've removed this president if we've achieved a majority in the Senate, at least a majority committed to reform in the Senate, and then add that to the majority in the House that's committed to reform, um, that there's a real chance that we get something extraordinarily important. And that next year we'll look back and think, literally next year today, we'll look back and think, it was unimaginable a year ago, but here it is, we've done it. And I think that we, if we can think to that moment of optimism and hope, it can motivate people to fight for it. And that's what's got to happen. We've got to have people demanding not just that we remove um, uh, the president or that we remove control of the Senate from one party to another, um, but that we imagine actually fixing a government so that it's not this corrupted, dysfunctional mess anymore, but something that we could, again, be proud of. Thank you so much, Lawrence. You're, you know, you, as, as everybody knows, you have an impressive resume. You continue this fight every day and it inspires me. And I know it inspires so many others. And we just, uh, like you said, uh, I love your optimism about this as well. And I think that you're right. Next year, we're going to be having a different conversation and a more positive conversation. So thank you once again for, for joining the show today. And, uh, 
Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.